0: Have you ever felt left out or overlooked? Maybe the person you're interested in dating seems more interested in your friend, who's not nearly the catch that you are. Or maybe you wonder why your classmate got into the school you both applied to, but you didn't, when you're clearly the stronger candidate. Oh, why does she keep getting pregnant faster than a rabbit, when we haven't been able to after years of trying and praying in vain? God, th- this isn't fair! I felt that way when I was in seminary. Another seminarian a year ahead of me got a job that I wanted. I was envious and a bit afraid that there wouldn't be other opportunities for me. I mean, I, I was a strong student, experienced public speaker. I'd already worked at three other churches before and during seminary. So why had they chosen him without even interviewing me? God, it, it it's not fair. Oh what's wrong with me? I mean, besides the fact that I still had another year of school before I could start, so I wasn't actually applying to jobs yet, and and that it was a, a Southern Baptist church and Well, I'm not Southern Baptist. But besides that, I mean, why didn't they pick me? We insist that it's unfair. But our deeper fear is that it isn't. That for some reason, we're not as deserving as that other person is. Of affection from others or blessings from God. Why am I not getting what I want? Well... Is there something wrong with me? I don't know what your story is, but almost all of us have felt left out or overlooked at some point. And we know how painful that can feel. So maybe we can empathize with the way that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were feeling in the story we just read from Luke 5. But if you don't know what happened just before this story, you might not appreciate why they were feeling that way. Jesus, some kind of miracle man, had recently emerged out of nowhere, and and suddenly everyone was talking about him with excitement and awe. He was healing people and teaching insightfully about God. But that was their job. After decades of study and submission to the rules, they were supposed to be the religious OGs, but this Jesus, skipped right past them. Their righteous authority was being ignored, so they were feeling indignant and maybe threatened. But I'd also guess that their feelings were hurt. Some new spiritual hero shows up and and he seems to be talking with everyone but us. So maybe the meme should look more like this. But then Jesus started recruiting people to join his ministry, for which the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were clearly the most qualified, but you know who he chose? Fishermen! Fishermen! Those boneheads hadn't spent years growing in holiness or studying the scripture. They hadn't even been to school. They, they probably cursed more than they prayed. As Luke chapter 5 continues, we see Jesus healing people miraculously. God's power and grace were being poured out, but on the wrong people. At first, it was some repulsive leper, and then a random paralyzed man. And Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had come to listen to Jesus, but while they were sitting right there, watching, Jesus walks right past them to help some outcasts. What is Jesus thinking? Those people don't matter. God doesn't even care about them. He cares about good people, holy people like us, Pharisees. We're the ones who deserve it. We're the ones who fast and pray. So Jesus should be coming to listen to us. He should be seeking our attention. We're the ones who made sacrifices and obeyed God's instructions. So why isn't Jesus hanging out with us? Why isn't he doing miracles for us? Well, that may sound petty, but it's pretty real. Don't you ever think that way when someone else gets a blessing that you wanted and think you deserved more? The job, the family, the money, the attention. And why does God seem to talk to other people when they pray but mostly ignore me? Why does God help other people, but leave me to do it all myself? Why is God changing their lives, but not mine? I go to church, I tithe, I pay my taxes. I'm a good person. I don't steal or sin much. I mean, I I try not to sin anyway. I, I pray before meals, even at restaurants when it's embarrassing. I'm the kind of person that God should like best. So, why isn't God doing miracles for me? This may be what the teachers and the Pharisees were feeling, but today's passage was the final straw. It was bad enough to welcome fishermen, because they didn't deserve it. But a tax collector? That crossed a line. The tax collectors were turncoat Jews who collaborated with the Roman occupiers to extort their own people for profit. If anyone deserved God's hatred, it was the tax collectors. And yet Jesus walks right up to one of them while he was doing his sinister business and invited him into Jesus's inner circle. That tax collector, Levi, was so excited about Jesus that he hosted a party for him. And lots of people came. But who were Levi's friends? The only people who would be friends with a tax collector. Other tax collectors just as despicable as him. Jesus could do better. I mean, a true holy man wouldn't fraternize with these dirtbags. So the Pharisees asked his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus gave them an answer they weren't expecting. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, well, so Jesus recognizes that we're healthy, right? I and mean, we're righteous. Good, and, and yes, let's admit, those people need God's help much more than we do. Yikes, I mean, they, they stink with sin. We've been telling them that for a while now, but they just don't listen to us the way they should. But, but still, I, wouldn't you rather hang out with you know, righteous people like us? We're the ones who deserve it. So they pointed out, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. What they're really saying is, Jesus... Forget these fools. We're the ones you should choose. These people are beneath you and and beneath us. I mean, like you said, we're the healthy ones. It makes sense, but only because they didn't understand what Jesus had said. He was being cheeky. He was really asking, a bit sarcastically, why do you need me? You've already got it all figured out. You healthy people don't need a doctor. Righteous people like you don't need to repent. So I'll hang out over here with the sinners who actually need help. Their pride kept them from catching Jesus' joke. The scriptures insist repeatedly that no one is righteous. There's no one who does what's right and never sins. These Bible experts should have recognized that right away. But they were blinded by their self-righteousness. They really didn't think they had anything to repent of or heal from. They faithfully fasted and prayed, they tithed or taught others how to behave. They'd arrived spiritually, which is why God should like them so much. They wouldn't have said that out loud any more than any of us would. Of course we all know that we're all sinners who need forgiveness. But can we be real for a second? I mean, I don't need forgiveness the way that, you know, drug dealers and gang members or hedge fund managers do. Those people are real sinners. You know who needs Jesus? TikTok influencers, telemarketers, porn stars, presidential candidates, social media CEOs. People who put their feet on the armrest in front of them. Or put pineapple on pizza. The Kardashians. I mean, I could go on and on. Jesus needs to change them. But he's already changed me. I've been going to church for decades. I I read the Bible. I pray. I, I love people who are different. I forgive those who frustrate me. So God should like me. Which makes me wonder... Why doesn't God seem to be with me as often as I'd like? Why don't I experience God's presence or power as often as other people seem to, even other people who don't seem to deserve it as much as I do? This is a, a common question asked by sincere Christians. We make the Pharisees out to be villains sometimes, but in truth, most of them were very sincere believers who just wanted to experience God more, so they prayed and obeyed far more earnestly than most people, and yet somehow still weren't enjoying the dynamic relationship with God that they longed for. And now Jesus comes along, apparently more interested in everyone but them. They must have felt frustrated, cheated even. They didn't catch his joke. So Jesus shares a few metaphors the last of which referred to wine. He said, No one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. I've heard this metaphor for years, and without thinking too deeply, I assumed it meant what pretty much everyone says it does. The old wineskin is Judaism, and the old wine is their oppressive religious laws. But Jesus offers the new wine of God's love and the Holy Spirit alive inside us, and that old wineskin just can't handle it. Something like that. The point is that we don't want to settle for the old wine of religion, disciplines, and traditions. We want the new wine of the Spirit that only Jesus can bring. That's a popular sentiment these days. Spiritual, not religious. Love, not laws. You know, fresh new wine instead of the musty old stuff. But here's the problem. That metaphor doesn't make sense. I don't drink, but even I know that no one wants new wine if old wine's available. You can get new wine for nine bucks at Market Basket, but in 2018, Someone bought a bottle of this wine for over a half-million dollars. That was for one bottle of aged burgundy. Can you imagine anybody being offered a glass of that, looking at the date on the bottle disapprovingly and asking, do you have anything fresher? No one would do that. Jesus tells us as much, admitting in verse 39, no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. So does that mean the old religious rules are better than what Jesus is bringing? Obviously not, which should be a clue that most of us us have been reading this all wrong. Making wine was a part of daily life in ancient Israel, so everyone knew how it worked. After growing grapes on carefully tended vines, you picked them, discarded any that were rotten or infested, And then gathered family and friends to crush the good grapes with their bare feet. You could drink it right then if you wanted to. It's basically grape juice. But no one wanted to. They wanted to wait until it was transformed into delicious wine. So that sweet juice was poured into the freshly harvested and highly pliable skin of a goat. It had to be flexible. Because as the natural sugars in the juice slowly fermented into alcohol, as that juice aged into fine wine, it also released gases that would stretch the goatskin to its limits. This process took a lot of time, but finally it was ready to be poured out into glasses and shared over a meal or celebration, or you could wait. Even without refrigeration, the perfect balance of naturally occurring bacteria and alcohol allowed the wine to be stored for many years, only growing more wonderful. But something happened to the skin if it was left there for too long. It had been reshaped by the fermentation of the new wine, but if it stayed there, eventually it got brittle and rigid. It would crack if it weren't handled with care, losing all of the wine and just leaving a big mess. And perhaps this helps us understand Jesus' metaphor. New wine is a fresh encounter with the Spirit of God, fresh revelation, fresh power. It's a new understanding of God's grace, truth, or love. It's a new recognition of God's presence and providence, his constant care for us. It's exhilarating. It fills us in a new way, which stretches and reshapes us. That sounds great, but that process takes time and can be very uncomfortable. And usually we only experience it after something in our lives has been crushed, like the grapes. Maybe it was our comfort or our certainty about the way things work. Maybe it was our pride or our life plan. Maybe we lost a person we loved or depended on. Into that hole left behind, God can pour His Holy Spirit, filling us in a new way that can expand us in ways we didn't know were possible before, or can break us. What makes the difference? A lot of it is how spiritually brittle or rigid we are. So many Christians today, like the Pharisees in the story we read, did have a powerful encounter with god they were filled with the holy spirit who stretched and reshaped them their lives were changed both inside and out as a result their lives looked different afterwards it changed the way they talked to others and treated them it changed their priorities and values not only did they discover how to love and forgive others they learned how to make space for who god is and who they are they may have incorporated new patterns of prayer bible readings small groups and worship that reflected the work God had done in them. Perhaps they got involved in God's mission through service and generosity. They were growing. And then, they were done. They'd matured, they'd arrived. They weren't interested in changing anymore, in part because it it was tiring, and in part because they didn't think they needed it so much anymore. They'd become the healthy people who don't need a doctor the righteous people who don't need to repent, they'd become rigid. They may be wonderful Christians still, faithful and kind, but they're not flexible anymore. They want to pray the way they like to, sing the worship songs they prefer, hear sermons that assure them that they're right, and serve in ways that are comfortable and familiar. As soon as we believe that we're pretty much done growing, we've arrived, we change from being curious to reflexively critical of further change or new ideas. We'll be very comfortable there for a while, but those limits we set to what we'll accept or engage form a box that become our spiritual casket. The wineskin has become brittle and can no longer handle new wine. They're willing to teach others, but not learn from them. Maybe they complain, or maybe they earnestly pray about how the world should change, the church should change, their family members or friends should change, but they aren't interested in how they should change. They don't need Jesus to heal them or lead them to repentance. Other people need that. That's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law seem to think. They didn't want healing or forgiveness from Jesus, they wanted attention, admiration, and applause. They didn't need to learn anything new from Jesus, because they already had all the answers. Usually, even if the skins become rigid, the wine inside is still fine, but not all aged wine becomes better with time. If the skin becomes so brittle that small cracks allow outside bacteria to get in, the wine transforms again into vinegar, becoming bitter and corrosive. We've all known Christians like that, people whose faith used to be vital and sweet, who were filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus, but who changed, eventually becoming irritable and self-righteous and self-centered. Bitterness is the bacteria of the soul, making us critical, entitled, and angry. We think that people owe us something, that God owes us something. This is what happened to some of the Pharisees, which is why Jesus was going to the fishermen and the tax collectors. It's not because they had it all together, but because they knew that they didn't. They knew they were empty, but that that made them flexible and eager to be filled. They were like fresh skins ready for new wine, knowing that it would stretch and change them and longing for Jesus to do exactly that. They sought Jesus for healing because they knew they were broken and spiritually sick in some way. They were ready to repent because they knew they weren't righteous. Levi, that sinful tax collector Jesus called, maybe you know him by his new name in Hebrew, Mattiyahu, Matthew, which means gift from God. Matthew received a gift from Jesus. He received favor forgiveness and new life into the empty skin of his soul god poured new wine the holy spirit who changed him into a faithful disciple and into the author of the gospel of matthew he became a gift from god to all of us he was changed that's what happens when the spirit of god gets inside us and that leads me to the real question i want to ask today Every Christian wants this new wine. We want to experience God's power and savor God's presence with us and alive inside us. We want love, joy, peace, and hope. We want to live life to the full. Jesus can give us all that through his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word, just as he did with Levi. So the question isn't whether we want new wine. Almost all of us want that. The question is whether we want to change. More precisely, whether we want to be changed in ways that we can't control or predict. Are you willing to let God reshape you? Change not just your feelings, but your priorities, values, attitude, and behavior, your relationships, your schedule, your social standing, your financial situation. We all want to feel more whole, but are you willing to be made more holy? Because if you want the thrill of God's power and the comfort of God's presence, but don't want to change, just don't think you need to, then this new wine isn't for you. Jesus warns that it, it, it might break you. It almost broke me. You know, I did end up getting a job after seminary, here at High Rock. Initially, we had about 30 people, but we started to grow. I had to grow, too. I was a white guy in an almost exclusively Asian church. I was a newly minted seminary grad who was suddenly discovering how to be a senior pastor. I was a new parent, trying to figure out how to raise a child. So daily, I was having to search the scriptures and wrestle in prayer to learn how to lead this church and serve my family and answer questions that I'd never considered before. As you might expect, over the years, I got better at parenting and pastoring, expert even. After raising 12 kids and planting 13 churches, I started being invited to conferences and seminaries to teach other people how to do it. I didn't need to keep growing as much as I just needed to keep going, keep doing what I'd already discovered. I could coast from here, no need to make big changes, which was a huge relief because changing, being stretched, being uncertain, feeling vulnerable, can be painful and exhausting. But then our wider society, which had mostly offered people in ministry a kind of cultural esteem, seemed to turn on us. Long simmering anger about very real abuses came to the surface, and all of us in church leadership were suddenly suspect Then the pandemic hit, and everything I knew about how to lead a church or church service changed overnight. I had to become an instant televangelist, which I wasn't good at and didn't enjoy. Then George Floyd was murdered, and our entire culture was called into question. I'd felt like an expert a few years before. I didn't know how to navigate a, a complex organization through these tumultuous waters that were all new to me, while simultaneously responded to, responding to pastoral needs that were urgent and constant, while feeling more criticized, both justly and unjustly, than ever. And I was angry about all that. I didn't want to change. I liked the way things were. I wanted things to go back to the way they used to be. I quietly fumed about this for months but through prayer and spiritual direction, the Spirit persuaded me that instead of being a disaster, this could be an opportunity, that I could grow, that I could learn, I could depend on God more than my experience, and some of the hurtful things in me could be healed. So I opened up myself to receive new wine. I prayed with new fervor. I went to counseling. I started reading books from authors I'd never paid attention to before. And it was just as uncomfortable as I feared it would be. As God fermented that new wine into the Holy Spirit, I was stretched in ways that didn't always feel good at the time but were good. The Spirit helped me see that I needed healing I needed repentance in more ways than I'd realized before. I needed to become less certain and more curious. I started to see that my expertise was keeping me from growing, learning, and depending on the Holy Spirit. I needed to rediscover my need for Jesus's power and grace. And as I did, I found that Jesus was there to pour them out in abundance. But before I could receive them, I needed to become more flexible and vulnerable because Jesus' grace and power, when we truly taste them, will change us. So the first question for you to bring to God in prayer today is, am I willing to be changed? Am I longing to be changed? So many times I've encouraged you to use the prayer from Psalm 139 that I've found to be as painful as it is helpful search me god and know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting as you pray that notice where you tend to get angry what situations or conversations get you riled up is it politics is it a family member or coworker is it your bills most often we get angry when we're afraid, afraid of losing something. Maybe it's our rights, but more often it's our our preferences or the respect we think we're entitled to. Most of you know that I have lots of family members, a wife and now 12 kids, and the truth is that over the years that's happened to me countless times. My coworkers are mature Christian pastors and servants and yet sometimes they drive me nuts. My first impulse is to want to strike out in anger, to destroy whatever's annoying or threatening my privileges or preferences. The Pharisees did that very same thing when people threatened their authority. You probably do it too. But over the years I've realized that even if the other person is in the wrong, if I'm getting too worked up with anxiety or anger, then although I might fantasize about about fighting them, the truth is there's something I need to fight in me Something needs to die in me. Some sense of entitlement, selfishness, or idolatry that makes me think I need something that I don't. Maybe I've mistaken my opinion or preferences to be the only good way, the right way to think or act. We become inflexible and rigid. Sometimes it's obvious what that is, but other times I have no idea. So I bring all that anger and anxiety to God and ask the Holy Spirit to help me. Search me, Lord, and know my anxious thoughts. Show me what needs to die in me so that I can be healed. Once I know that, I can ask the Spirit to heal me. Make the wineskin of my soul soft, strong, and ready to receive new wine. Perhaps afterwards I'll still believe that I was right. But I can be peacefully confident rather than angry and argumentative. Perhaps the other person who aggravated my wound still needs to be corrected, but now I can do it in love rather than in rage, for their good rather than for my own. Living and working with so many people who are so different from me has often been difficult, but it's also been one of the best ways for God to show me the offensive ways in me so that I'm ready to be changed. This is why we always have a time of confession before communion. We need to acknowledge our need for Jesus so that we can be ready to receive him. If, like the Pharisees, you won't admit that you need healing, then the great physician will walk right past you to those who do. So the longing to change and grow and the confession that we need to is the first step towards receiving the new wine from Jesus. The second is to make room for it because fine wine isn't meant to be stored forever. It's meant to be shared, to be poured out and served to others, to to spread spread solidarity and, and community and joy. If you want God to fill you with new wine, then share whatever you've been given so far. So often, I hear people tell me that they'd love to serve somehow, maybe in Kids Rock or the band or some other ministry, but they're not spiritually ready just now. They don't say it this way, but they want to wait for Jesus to give them new wine before they serve what they have. But that's not the way it works. Get off the sidelines and pour yourself out for others, offering them the best wine that you've got. Give them whatever wisdom and compassion that God's already developed in you. And they'll be blessed by it. But so will you. As we serve others, we open up space for the Spirit to fill us with new wine, to show up in new ways and lead us through new challenges where we can keep being reshaped more and more into what God created each of us to be. So if we want to receive new wine, we need to be ready to change and willing to serve. And finally, we need to come to Jesus to receive it. We can do that every day by reading a short section from the scriptures, listening for whatever the Spirit wants to say to you today. Ask him to speak to you as you read, to fill you with new wine that can ferment inside over the rest of the day or week. Every time we come to a worship service, we could hope that they'll play the songs I like and the sermon will be entertaining and the coffee will be good. Or we could pray that regardless of those things, that as we fix our focus on God, We'll get a taste of new wine today. After we hear God's word and confess our ongoing need for God's power and grace to heal us, we come forward to receive the new wine from Jesus. By dying and rising again, Jesus has made something new possible. Jesus offers us his body and his blood, his own Holy Spirit, to live inside us, transforming us from the inside out. Receive him. But realize that when you receive the Holy Spirit of Jesus, it's going to change us. You can hear that as a threat, like the Pharisees would have, or as a promise. God loves you as you are, but too much to let you stay this way. Our God heals. So come with open hands and open hearts, ready to be changed, hoping, to be changed, hoping for new wine that will ferment inside us into fine wine, that we can serve to a world that's longing for a taste of the joy, peace, and love that can only be found in Jesus.